Well, good morning, Redeemer Bible. A pleasure to be with you here in this uh, final Sunday of 2019. It's like our toes are hanging over the edge and ready to plunge into 2020. And it's usually customary for um, moments like this for us to gather together and remind ourselves what we're committed to and uh, create some resolutions about what we'd like to see the Lord do in our life in the coming year so that we don't get to the end of 2020 and be like we are here in 2019. We hope that this next year is the most sanctifying, and the most honoring to the Lord yet. Um, But can I just let you in on a little secret? Um, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, New Year's resolutions last on average 16 days. So I'm in favor of like pitching the resolutions and just going hard after Jesus. Anybody with me? Okay, so dumping resolutions and going for Jesus in John chapter 8. So if you have a copy of God's Word, join me in John chapter 8. One of the most precious, one of the most thrilling Uh, One of the most famous, but I would dare say one of the most misunderstood sections from all the life of Jesus found here for us in the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is a perfect place for us to go because it presents Christ to us. Uh, John even tells us that he presents Christ to us in such a way that we might believe in him. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you'd have life in his name. Uh, Most famous verse in the Bible, 316, we know that God gave his own son so that we who believe would not perish but have eternal life and that whosoever is us. And really, John's gospel lasers in on a variety of that whosoever people. Um, In chapter one, for example, you have curious people that are drawn to Jesus, and this book is for them. Uh, They've heard about him. They want to hear more about him. They're drawn to him. They want to listen to his claims, and they press in and find out more. Uh, But you also have staunchly religious people who don't feel like they need a savior, and Jesus speaks pointedly, and John shows us them. You have people that are, are sort of at the top of their game spiritually, but are very dissatisfied with their religion and all that they've done in their own strength to earn their way to God, but still found that there's something missing in their life. John's gospel is for them. Contrast that with the barely religious people who know just enough about God and his word to know that the way that they're living is wrong, but they haven't found a compelling reason to break from the life that they love, the life that's attracted to this world And you have broken people and everything in between. But by the time you get here to John chapter 8, we have Jesus put front and center for us by John, but by a group of people that are looking for an opportunity to kill him. And it gives us one of the greatest opportunities to see our Savior on display as Jesus now will speak and minister and free a woman who has been caught in the sin of adultery, Jesus will set her free. You can follow along in the scripture here in John chapter eight as I read. Really, it picks up at the last verse of chapter seven, verse 53. It goes like this. The text says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to, what? Throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, what? Sin no more. This is one of the most incredible stories from the life of Christ. This is a story that reminds us that nobody is so good that they are good enough to earn their way into God's favor. But nobody is so broken, nobody is so sinful, nobody is so damaged, nobody is so far lost that they can't be saved by the rescuing power of the gospel by Christ. This story puts us in a category that really draws a line in the sand for us. All of us deserve to be stoned. That's what this chapter is about. Some of us have sins like this woman, where all of us deserve to have the wages of sin, which is what? Death applied to us. And this woman on this day comes to a place where her risk and gamble, playing fast and loose with the law of God has come up with her, come up for her, and she is now in a dangerous place where she is facing the just execution for her sin. And she is standing in front of a group of people who have rocks in hands and knuckles that are white and teeth that are clenched and they're ready to crush her brains. And you have a woman who has put herself in harm's way, who is desperately in need of hope, and learns there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty states. This is a story for those of us whose sins are blatant and they're open and they're obvious and everybody sees them and everybody sneers at them. And it's a text for those whose sin is cloaked and hidden in religion. Just as sinful, just as vile, just as needy of a savior, but not so obvious because we've insulated ourselves by our external conformity to the law of God and compared ourselves with people like this woman to make us feel better about ourselves. Both categories are enough to condemn us for other. And Jesus is the solution to both. Say amen if you believe that. So here's where we are. This story comes to us 
And it creates really not only a presentation from John about who Jesus is, but we are presented in this story to a group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees who are using this as an opportunity. The text says not to uphold the law of God, not to sustain his glory in the eyes of people, not to regard him as holy for all to see, but verse six, so that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. This is a perfect dilemma. They've watched Jesus. They've tracked with him. They've seen how he responds. Jesus loves sinners. He loves rescuing sinners. He loves watching sinners who see their need for him and feel their guilt and shame be set free by the power he brings through his grace. They love him. But what has happened now is the scribes and the Pharisees, feel free to boo, yeah, the scribes and the Pharisees have come to a place where they are looking at Jesus's mercy as a way to trap him. They're trying to pit God's justice against Jesus's mercy because it goes like this. Okay, Jesus, we've watched you love on sinners. You're the friend of sinners. So clearly you can't be from God because God is not a friend of sinners because God is holy. And there's something wrong with you, Jesus, if all of these people who are filthy and vile like you, there's something wrong with that. It must mean that you're not who you claim to be because sin separates us from God, but they're drawn to you. They're attracted to you and you're attracted to them. And you find some little way every time we watch you to, to end the story and put a nice little bow on top of it and they go away free and rejoicing in you. But we got a clear cut example, Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And God's word says she must be stoned. So what do you say? Because if you try to find a way to get her out of being stoned, you're not from God. Because anyone who comes from God must believe what God has revealed in his word, must be consistent with Moses. And if you set her free against a clear-cut example of her being caught in this sin, you're not from God. And so not only are we going to stone her today, but all of your claims about being God, all of your claims about being from God amount to blasphemy. We're going to stone her and we're going to stone you. So Jesus, you're going to have to agree with us. Oh, by the way, if you do agree with us, we got you there too. Because here's the thing. Um, Rome doesn't let us put anybody to death. That's their job. They've taken that away from us. But if you're truly from God, you're the son of God, you are who you claim to be, then you understand that this woman has to be stoned. And so if you agree with us that she must be stoned, well, we're going to go to Rome and we're going to tell them what you've just sanctioned. So we're either going to get you in trouble with God, we're either going to get you in trouble with Moses, or we're going to get you in trouble with Rome. Either way, you're hanged. It's a perfect dilemma. Which is why I love Jesus' perfect answer. By the time this story is done, he will show that he is perfectly aligned and consistent with the law of God. He is just, but he has found a way to justify this woman who believes in him. This is one of the most precious examples of every single one of us finding the guilt of our sin rightly removed by 
Christ. So, so here we find ourselves now. There's one of two people listening to me um, and one of two people in terms of way we need to respond. This text comes at it from two different angles. There are those of us who need to drop the rock because we got our teeth clenched and we got our arms wrapped around a rock and we've got a way of thinking about ourselves and thinking about other people. When we compare ourselves to them, we start feeling pretty good and we start calling out justice against them. Because we've forgotten this thing that Jesus brings called grace. Or we have so abused his grace and so shamed ourselves by the things that we've done that we need to hear Jesus say to our hearts, go and from now on sin no more. So 2020 is going to be one of those. Drop the rock or go and sin no more. Let go of the things that you're tempted to use to exalt yourself as one who doesn't need grace by comparing yourselves to others or run to the only one who alone can rescue you from sin, whatever its form. Let's start with the ones who need to drop the rock. Can we do that? That's where the text begins. And let's, let's begin by maybe saying this. We need to drop the rock. Why? We need to drop the rock because we too easily tread where we should tremble. We too easily tread where we should tremble. I take that from verse 2 because Jesus early in the morning has come to the temple. And that's not merely a geographical location to describe what's happening where. This is the place where God is worshipped. This is the place where God is exalted. This is the place where God's holiness is revered. This is the place where God's holy righteous standard is taught. But listen, this is the place where sinners are made right with the holy God. Because this is the place where sacrifices are poured out. This is the place where guilty, vile, and helpless we come to have our sins covered because God made a promise that a sacrifice in our place would take the shame of our sin and we could go free and over and over and over and over again. Everyone who comes realizes I am guilty. I am vile. I do need a savior. Here I am, God. I don't deserve to approach you. Even the priest the guy who's supposed to be the most spiritual guy in the land to minister on behalf of people in the presence of God knew that if he walked into that presence of God and had sin in his heart, God would kill him. That's why Ecclesiastes 5 says, don't don't be in a hurry to get to the house of God. Close your mouth and go slow. Because when you come into the presence of God, you need to tremble. These guys aren't trembling. They're looking for an opportunity to crush the life out of a woman and find some ground of accusation to murder God the Son. And so I would ask you, as these people are coming and they compare themselves with her, and by the way, every time they showed up in the temple, that's what they did. Luke 9 tells us that they showed up and they started praying in the temple, God, I thank you that I'm not like all of them. Rightly do we boo. Because what they've done is they've founded a religion that doesn't need a savior. Could you imagine coming up with a version of salvation that doesn't require a savior? We have a religion. And it allows us to earn our way with God. We have favor with God because of all the righteous things that we do. And the more we look around this world around us and all the awful things that they're doing and and the culture and and it's sending itself to hell, look at us and, and we're more righteous. And this was a group of hypocritical, self righteous, 
sinners who made sure that the spotlight was always on the sin of somebody who did something worse than them so that they could step back and hide their own sin in the shadows. Jesus is going to rip that veneer off in this passage. Yes, this woman has done wickedly. She's done wrong. But their sin is just as heinous and perhaps even worse. They should be trembling. And here they are trouncing. Let me ask you, which is worse? Being caught in adultery, indulging your flesh outside of God's design for marriage or plotting the assassination of God the Son? Which is worse? They tread where they should tremble. They should be looking where? They should be looking at their own sin. Instead, they're saying, our sin is better than hers. If that's in your heart, you need to drop the rock. You got a hot rock in your hand. You're holding it. And the self-righteousness is removing your need for the grace of Christ. But there's a second reason we need to drop the rock. Let's say it this way. We too narrowly select who and what we confront. We who need to drop the rock are standing there with a rock, but we are partial to ourselves. We are biased to ourselves. We so narrowly select who and what we confront. Verse three shows us the scribes and Pharisees. Appropriate moment to boo. Okay, thank you. It shows us the scribes and Pharisees. Thank you. Um, but, but something is really fishy about this whole thing, isn't there? There's something just off here. If, if this woman was caught in the act of adultery, then where is the guy, right? Was he just faster than you? Did he run, outrun you? Some commentators believe that this was maybe a sting operation, that maybe even one of the scribes or Pharisees was planted there to do this thing, justifying it under the guise of getting rid of this blasphemer Jesus. But what's interesting here is these guys who now are carrying out something that is clearly partial. The woman is here, but there's no man. She's been accused of this. And if you believe that, you just should have stoned her. Why have you dragged her here to me? This whole thing is, is fishy. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew the law of God. These religious leaders understood the word of God. In fact, just to help you understand a little bit more, the scribes were a group of people who did what? What do you think they did every day? They scribed. That's why they were called the scribes. Exactly. So they would sit there and they would, with their pen, work on the parchment, sometimes for hours, sometimes for days on a single line, sometimes a single word. They would work on the Bible. They didn't have printers and photocopiers and things like that. They had to do everything by hand. So every jot, every tittle, everything in line, every vowel pointing, every marker, everything. These guys knew the Bible. They memorized the Bible. They knew it backwards and forwards. So whenever you had a question about something that God said, you would go ask a scribe. If you wanted an interpretation on what the Bible meant, you would go and talk to a scribe. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were more like your lay leaders. Think of your lay elders. Think of your small group leaders. Think of Sunday school teachers and pastors and counselors. And they were the people that were a little bit more interested in helping you apply the scriptures. But here's what they did. They weren't so much helping you unpack the scriptures as it relates to your own repentance before the Lord. 
hard. They were working hard to build a barricade around the Bible of traditions. And watch this. This is what they did. We have all these laws and all these traditions that will help you. And if you keep our laws, you'll never encroach past them into the Bible. Therefore, you'll never violate the Bible and you will be righteous. So they created an entire system of religion that didn't need a savior, but required their leadership for you to take. But here's the problem. It never addressed the heart. It was always external, outward, behavioral conformity that hid internal corruption. Every time Jesus was with these guys, he condemned them. Every single time. He started his ministry in Matthew chapter five by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how his ministry begins. He talks to the Pharisees, says, woe to you. He says, you know what happens, Pharisees? You travel across land and sea on a mission trip to make one convert. And when you do, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You know what you are, scribes and Pharisees? This is Matthew 23. You are like these whitewashed tombs, all decorated, visible, shining brilliantly in the light, decorated, and we can see you from afar, and we stand off at a distance from you, and we marvel at the beauty of your righteousness, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. That's this group of people standing here before Jesus. And they're choosing with full knowledge of the scriptures to focus on this woman with this sin while omitting all the other scriptures and all the other sins because it doesn't serve their purpose to betray Jesus, to give in to the dark desires of their wretched hearts. The hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who knew better. Jesus said, you're unsaved. Jesus said to them, you are, in Matthew 12, unredeemable. The only people Jesus ever gave up on were the scribes and the Pharisees. And what it argues for is the hypocrisy of a hardened heart. They knew every detail about the law, but we know this. Why did God, he told us, why did he give the law in the first place? Why did he lay out every command? Why did he tell them all the things that they must do in fastidious adherence and obedience to his law? To prove that we can't what? We can't do it. We can't keep it. The whole point of the law is you're not holy. You can't do this. You need a savior. And they found a way to convince themselves while plotting the murder of God in flesh to believe in their conscience they were fine. But it's clear they're not obeying. It's clear they're partial to themselves. It's clear that they want to exalt the sin of this woman to outshine their own. That's why Jesus would say to them, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's true. But let me ask you this. Have you ever lusted in your heart? Because if you have, you've broken the same commandment. And you're just as guilty before God. But if we have a rock in our hand, it's because we're too narrowly selecting who and what we choose to confront and always in our favor. Here's the third thing. We too carelessly use the Bible as a weapon to shame others. Do you see what they're doing? Look at verse five. 
In the law, in the law, in the law, in the law, in the law. It's like, it's like a string on the back of Woody. You know, you pull it, in the law, in the law, in the law. That's all these guys did, right? But the Bible says, but it says right here, it's, it's Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22. And the Bible says, and the Bible says, great, you, you, you're, you're Joe Bible fathead. You know it. You, you got the Bible. And you've taken the sword of the spirit and turned it into a machete so that you can hack this woman down. What have you done? Now, we would agree, would we not, that adultery is wrong in sin? God says it is. We would understand that there is a hardness of heart that leads you there. There comes a point where you have to choose and you have to choose to give in to what Ephesians 4 calls the lust of deceit, which means sin allures me, it deceives me, I step towards it, it lies to me, but then having given into it, I harden my heart. And having hardened my heart and dulled my conscience, now it's easier to commit the next sin and to go further and further, and I don't feel as bad the more I go. That's a hardening process. Hebrews 3.13 calls that the hardness of our hearts when we give in to the deceitfulness of sin. But let me ask you this. Which is harder? A woman who's caught in a pattern of immorality and idolatry or a group of men who knew the scriptures and knew better and every single time they read the scriptures and did nothing, their hearts got harder. Do do you understand what I'm saying? All you have to do to harden your heart. You don't have to go commit adultery to harden your heart. All you have to do to harden your heart is read the Bible and do nothing. I heard the Bible, but I didn't do anything. I went to small group, but I didn't do anything. I listened to a podcast, but I didn't do anything. I sang the words, but it didn't have any effect on me. James says, yeah, be quick to hear, but don't be a hearer only who deludes yourselves. Be a hearer and a Doer, if you're not a doer, the word's not working. Your heart's getting hard. These guys knew the scriptures but didn't do it. Their hearts were as hard as the rocks they were holding in their hands. And they've weaponized the Bible to crush the life out of a sinner who knows she's guilty. That's heinous. That's wicked. Wicked to punish sin? No. Wicked to take the Bible, which is meant to show us our sin, and deprive somebody of the grace that's made available to them by God the Savior. They don't care about her. They don't care about the word of God. They don't care about her soul. What happens when you kill her? If she is what you say she is, where is she going? Hell. Hell. Let's send her to hell now. Our earth will be free of at least one more sinner. That's your religion? You have no concept of grace. If you're there, there's only one final step for you. It's this one, number four. We too quickly assume the place of judge and executioner. See what it says in verse five? Moses commanded us. 
I'm under divine mandate. Do you understand? I'm just obeying God. Now, I've never been stoned, either form of stoning. <laughs> Some of you are like, what did he mean by that? I don't get it. <laughs> I mean this kind. So this probably weighs about 15 pounds. It's the real thing. It's got a nice jagged edge, and it would represent what you would have seen these men holding, which these stones are everywhere in Israel. And, and, and from what I can tell, stoning is not a very pleasant experience. <clears throat> what they would do historically, this is all going to go down on the temple floor if they can pull it off that quick, that quick. But what you usually did when you stoned somebody is you would find them guilty in a trial that was sanctioned and approved and the evidence was clear and they would take this person to the edge of a cliff and they'd push him off the cliff. But it wasn't a cliff like, you're not going to fall forever. It was like maybe a 10 foot drop. Okay, The drop was to disable you. The disabling drop, you'd break a leg, you'd sprain an ankle, or you get the wind knocked out of you, something like that. And while you're down there, the next thing you see when you look up is somebody's head with a hand full with rocks over it. You see those Jesus movies and people are like, eh, eh, those little pebble rocks. Eh. Like, that's, that's not the picture. Think this size rock, volleyball size, soccer ball size rock, crushing your ribs, knocking the air out of you, compressing with weight on your chest that makes it impossible for you to breathe until the only thing left exposed is your head and a strategic hit ends your life. And there's no need to give you a burial. You're so undignified, you don't deserve one. You just got one. You're buried underneath a pile of stones. And everybody who walks by that pile of stones knows you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. That's stoning. And they're saying... Moses commanded us to do this. We're the judge. We're the jury. We're the executioners. What do you say? Now, Jesus' response is unexpected. It says in verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So Jesus goes to a knee. And the text says they continued to say to him, what are you going to do? What do you say? You going to obey God or not? Do you agree with God? What's your answer? He doesn't answer. He just Scratches on the ground. Why? Well, some people are like, well, Jesus was, um, he was writing the names of the people standing there. Their sins. Be like, okay, Bob has a gambling problem. Larry's addicted to tanning. You know. <laughs> How many think that's it? Yeah, I don't think that was it either. Um, some people think that Jesus is stalling. And by stalling, meaning buying himself time to think, but also maybe giving them time to cool off, maybe staring at them. I mean, would you rather be yelled at or stared at by Jesus? I think I'd choose being yelled at. You imagine being stared at by the Savior? As if to say, how could you? 
Is this your religion? This is what you think God's about? Who are you? And he writes on the ground. Now, wouldn't you love to know what he was writing on the ground? Can I tell you? Because we know. Raise your hand if you'd like to know what he was writing on the ground. Okay, just four of you. Raise your hand if you want to know what he's writing on the ground. Okay. Don't turn there, but write this reference down. Numbers chapter five. Fascinating text. The scripture interprets the scripture for us. I'll tell you exactly what Jesus was doing on the ground. And we get our first clue because the word that's used to describe Jesus the first time he stooped down and began to work on the ground, it's a form of the word, right? But it really could be translated better, scratch. Jesus scratched the ground. And the second time he bends down and starts to work on the ground, it is the word for right. He is writing something clearly. What is he doing? Numbers chapter five tells us. Are you ready for this? Watch this. This is so, so amazing. So here's Numbers five. It says, if anybody has been accused of committing the sin of adultery, but it sounds kind of fishy, take them to the tabernacle or the temple and stand them in front of the high priest. Jesus. He's the high priest. Make the accusation, and then you ready for this? The high priest will go to the temple floor and he will collect dust from the temple ground. That's exactly what he was doing. He's scratching the ground. He's pulling dust together. Numbers 5 says you take that dust, you put it in a cup. And you mix it with water and you swirl it around. And then it says, you go back and you start writing the words of this curse so that it's really clear what God's word is. And you take that dust and pour it into the same cup. You stir it up and you give it to the woman to drink. Kind of weird. I'd agree. Honesty in church. Anybody think that's weird? I kind of think that's a little weird. What happens next is so amazing, though. You stand this woman before the Lord, open and laid bare before the God with whom she has to do. And she drinks the water. And if she has done nothing wrong, nothing will happen to her. But if she's guilty, on the spot, her feminine parts will rot in her body. You know what Jesus is doing? You want to go? You think I'm at odds with the law of Moses. You found some loophole in my mercy that you're going to use to kill this woman. You want to go? I'll go. Let's bring God, the all-knowing, the almighty, to account for our hearts right now. God who sees and God who knows. I'll follow the scriptures, but I have a question to ask you first. Text says he stood up, literally Jesus straightened up. You got sin? Whoever among you is without sin, you throw the first stone. I'll obey the law of Moses, but I want to have a conversation with your heart. 
Do you think you're more righteous than this woman? Because in the veneer of your religious hypocrisy, you have evaded the shame of this moment? No. The God who you know is here, the God who sees all, sees into your heart. And this is my temple. And I'm the priest. And I will tell you that I know what I see. And so you can see these guys, right? They're standing there. They're holding their rocks. And the text says, when they heard it, verse 9, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Boy, I hope that didn't break something. (laughs) I'm so sorry. dropped the rock they knew they were sinners and they stood there condemned why the older ones first well probably a little longer list to think of maybe um, maybe they had the advantage of a little more wisdom than the young arrogant guys ready to make a claim on this woman to elevate themselves Now watch this. Mind-blowing. Ready? It says in verse 9, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, you can't miss this moment. If there is no accuser, there is no trial. If there is no trial... There is no due process. You may go free. He found a way to set her free. She lives another day. And then hears him say, but from now on, go and what? Sin no more. Okay, so with all the Pharisees and the scribes gone, let's turn briefly to look at this woman. For those of us who need to hear, go and sin no more. Look at this. How about we too easily stumble into the pleasures of sin? Some of us need to hear that in 2020. We too easily stumble into the pleasures of sin. This woman, verse 3 and 4 tells us, has been caught in the act. It was true. What she did was wrong. It was sinful. It was shameful. She was caught red-handed in the act in hot pursuit of a sinful pleasure that did not satisfy. And when she moved on to try to get a greater pleasure, it did not satisfy. But it put put her in a pattern where she now is... hmm, She's been treading where she should have trembled. Different sin, different manifestation, different form. But giving in to what Hebrews 12 says to us that we fall into the sin that so easily entangles us. And here she is. She knows it's caught up with her. She's been found out. She almost died at the hands of these wicked religious hypocrites, but she deserved to die justly so. She's standing there, barely clothed, covered in shame. And you have to ask her the question at the moment, was the pleasure worth it? No. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. 
Sin has a pleasure to it. If it didn't, nobody would be doing it, right? If sin was like rice cakes, nobody would be eating it, right? It's the first amen I heard out of you, brother. (laughs) Number two, we too narrowly select what portions of the Bible we obey. See, here's the scribes and the Pharisees choosing what portions of the Bible they want to apply to her, but here she is picking and choosing which portions of the Bible she wants to obey. She didn't get bust in from Rome. She was a citizen of Jerusalem. This woman grew up knowing the scriptures, knowing the word of God. She had ample teaching, and even though she might have pushed it out of her heart to justify her sinfulness, her conscience bears witness, the scripture says. She knows acting married with someone that's not her husband is sin and worthy of death. So she took a gamble. And she lost. And here she is. She chose to obey certain portions of the word of God and clearly portions she neglected. We give little thought to the fact that this was a girl one day that her dad would have probably taught to ride a bike. This a little girl who had to waddle into somebody's arms to learn how to walk. This was a little girl who, who at one point in her life realized that this world is pretty broken and pretty vile and there's a pretty awful world waiting for me with people ready to do really awful things to me at my expense that will not only injure me but enslave me and they'll want things from me that they shouldn't have and they'll take it and I'll like it and I'll start a pattern nobody talks about the process she went through where she lowered her view of God and descended into this pattern of living she knew the right thing to do but she didn't do it She needs to go and sin no more. Here's the third thing. We too carelessly open ourselves to shame and ridicule. This is is a stigma. She knows that there's a stigma to this particular sin and she is caught in the act. And I guarantee you, she did not anticipate when she went into that moment of pleasure that men will burst in the room, they will take me and they will throw me half naked in front of a watching audience in front of God, very God. She started somewhere along the line believing this will satisfy me. No one will know. I won't get caught. It's not that bad. I could stop anytime I want to. I won't let get it out of hand. I'll do it just this once. I'll start new in 2020. Careless. She would have read growing up, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. And it did. She was wrong. Time and truth go hand in hand. The longer the time goes on, the truth will come out. And it came out in the most unexpected time and way here. And then fourthly, we too quickly open ourselves, put ourselves in the place of judgment. It is true. You reap what you sow. You choose to sin. You choose to suffer. The scripture is clear. She deserved to be stoned. God didn't say otherwise. These religious hypocrites, though that they were wrong, they were right. But something happens between the time the rocks drop and Jesus says to her, Go and sin no more. It's verse 11. When Jesus asks 
has no one condemned you? She said, no one. Next word. Lord. My sovereign. My master. If you'll have me. I'll be yours. Here's the religious hypocrites with a white glove. Wiping around the rim of her soul. Finding the smudge. And putting it in her face. And here's Jesus. Perfect. All-knowing. Running his finger around the rim of her soul. Finding a crack. And pouring in his grace. There's no one, Lord. And then she hears these words that I pray have been spoken over you by the Savior. Neither do I condemn you. Because if you're in Christ, Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's the reality. This woman was converted. She, She was set free legally, but she was set free spiritually. All her sins, which she knew so well, wiped away. The only person standing in the temple that day that didn't deserve to be stoned was Jesus. And what happens? Because you could still cry foul here. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, I realize that there's no accusers from these self-righteous, hypocritical people, but this woman did this thing. And God's law still says she must pay. So is Jesus winking at sin? Is he like, hey, you better get out of here before they come back. And by the way, just like do better. No. The one who did not deserve to be stoned, but who could have picked up a rock there. Instead, watch that woman walk away and instead he picked up a cross. And he walked to a hill called Calvary. And he did what no one could do. He satisfied the demands of his own justice in our place. Do you understand when he goes to the cross, loved ones, he was treated as if he had committed that adultery. When he goes to the cross, he's treated as if personally responsible for our sins. He was treated as a drunk. He was treated as a thief. He was treated as a meth addict. He was treated as someone who films child pornography. He was filmed as a, he was uh, uh, treated as a terrorist. And guilty of all the things that we have done, though he had done none of them. And he goes in our place. 
and all who call him Lord, he says, neither do I condemn you. This is the Jesus we need. This is the Jesus that the world needs to see in us.